Hello, and welcome to the Motivational Interviewing and Beyond podcast. Uh, Joel Porter here, and on behalf of uh, Steve Rolnick, I uh, would like to welcome you to our webinar turned into a podcast. And in this episode, we spent um, time with some of our colleagues from around the world, uh, Brazil, South Africa, talking about motivational interviewing across cultures. We're, what we're curious about is what are the what is it about motivational interviewing that makes it attractive to people from around the world, speaking different languages, having different customs, and in different settings. And so we um, were joined by some friends and colleagues and had great conversations with the audience. Uh, just trying to get a better understanding um, about what it is about motivational interviewing that's so appealing to people and also seems to be helpful. So we hope you enjoy this episode and please um, share it with your friends and your colleagues and your students and send us any feedback. Thank you very much and enjoy. So why don't we go ahead and get going? You ready? So you're you're gonna you and I will be running the thing today, Anne. So um, let's go for it. Yeah, yeah, yep. Yeah. yeah, I'll let I'll let Tip know what's going on tonight. Morena, Tip. <laughs> um, we're gonna go ahead and get started, and I'll I'll just leave your camera on, Tip, and I'll I'll bring you on when um, I'll bring you up first, probably. So just hang in there, okay? That's right. All right. So, um, Morena, good morning, good afternoon, uh, good evening, uh, wherever you wherever you are. We welcome you to the MI and Beyond uh, conversation. And um, I'm Joel Porter. I'm one of the hosts of Motivational Interview and Beyond. Uh, Steve Rolnick is a little bit in transit right now, <clears throat> and he is um, going to join as soon as he can get his get logged onto Wi-Fi, so he'll just be dropping in. Um, and um, so um, I'm, I'm Joel, I'm a clinical psychologist. I'm based in Christchurch, New Zealand. Um, one of the, um, you know, with, with Ange and Steve, we, we have fun doing this webinar and asking questions and hanging out with our colleagues and friends uh, and trying to understand. Um, and trying to understand things. So um, we're going to start off. Ange and I are going to are going to um, get the ball rolling, so to speak. And Ange, why don't you introduce yourself and let everybody know who you are and where you are? Sure. Um, my, my name's Ange, Ange Watkins. I'm based in Cardiff in Wales. I used to work with Steve Rolnick back in Cardiff University. I'm really privileged to be supporting this webinar. So really glad to be here with everyone today. All right. So, so this is a the, this webinar today has been a question that that I know that Steve and and a lot of uh, people in the motivational interviewing network of trainers and probably around the world have been, um, I think, initially surprised by and now real curious about and. And that is how is it that how is it that an approach like motivational interviewing can travel so well across so many borders and cultures and languages, and um, 
and people seem to move towards it and find <clears throat> utility and helpfulness in helping people engage in and create change in their life. <clears throat> Excuse me. I've, I've had the fortune to, to do, like many people, I've had the fortune, the good fortune to do training pretty much around the world um, with translators with, in areas uh, very different to, to myself in, do, in motivational interviewing and consistently, you know, would get positive feedback about the approach. And, I, and, I, and I've been trying to figure out what is it about MI in particular um, that seems to travel so well. And <clears throat> I've had some thoughts. I don't have the answers, but I, sep- I certainly have some thoughts about that. So what, what Steve and I figured is we would get in touch with some of our colleagues and friends around the world, um, as well as we knew, as well as um, relying on our international friends and um, to to join the conversation to try to unpack this a little bit, to try to try to really see, you know, what is it about MI, and you know, some of it will just be our own theories and ideas, but. I wonder what sort of uh, common ground we're going to come up with, where, where we're going to land and similarities, and I wonder what the differences are. So what I'm curious about, you know, as a, as a starter is, you know, your, y'all's initial thoughts, but also how am I as um, adapted linguistically and culturally to um, – be able to be practiced in a way where it feels consistent and it feels appropriate and it doesn't feel like this is a Western approach being transported into a non-Western culture, um, which happens a lot with psychological approaches. You know, they just try to replicate as opposed to modify and, and adapt. Um, and then also even things like, you know, reflective listening and um, change talk and all of those sorts of things. How I, My experience has been that, you know, people talk about change, but they don't do it in the same way sometimes. Um, and how you deal with relationships, particularly, you know, the old expert trap when your clients or patients want you to be the expert um, or they're not used to coming in and talking what's going on with them or having a healthcare provider say, what do you think? You know, what do you think is best for you? And those sorts of things. So these are the, these are the, these are the conversations I want to have within a bigger conversation. Um, Angie, am I missing anything? Is there anything else we need to add before we get going? I think that's a wonderful starter for 10, Joel. That's excellent. Okay. <clears throat> All right. So the way we're going to do this and we're going to bring on one of our esteemed, lovely, kind guests at a time. And, but we're going to just keep building the conversation as we go. So um, I, think I'll pro- I think I'll just bring Tip up first, and then we'll have a conversation. And then, Shamia, why don't you join us after that? And you can comment on what we're talking about and add whatever you want. And then... Um, Elizabeth can come on from Brazil. You can introduce yourselves as you come on. And uh, Fergus from South Africa can come on as left. And then at the end, we'll have a conversation and we'll also be bringing in questions and comments from the chat. 
Um, and hopefully there'll be people from the audience that might want to, you know, join us as a panelist as well, too. How's that sound? All right. Sure. All right. So, Tiffany, my friend, my brother, um, how are you this morning, man? Kilda. Um, yeah, just waking up alert now. Um, yeah. Um, should I introduce myself? Absolutely, man. All right. Any way you want. Okay. Well, no reira, kia koutou. Uh, anu, uh, miha te kia koutou, ko hau mai ki tēnei wāzui, ai ki te whitiwhiti kōrero, ki te whakawhānui, whakatinana i ngā kaupapa o te mana o e mai me hoki uh, te mana o ngā mahi hauora uh, i ki tētahi o ngā iwi uh, uh, ki te ao katoa uh, nō reira. Uh, so, um, folks. So, it's just a, uh, an acknowledgement for everyone from the four winds for, for arriving and, and having, a, I guess, having a discussion to uh, flesh out whakatinana, to flesh out, to whakawhānui, sort of expand the kōrero about sort of why is it about MI that seems to work well across the borders. And um, and I introduced myself, so um, Ngaro Te Hiki Timau is my mountain, uh, Waihua is my river, uh, my uh, Kura Hikakaua is my sub-tribe, um, Kahangunu is my tribe, and uh, Waihua is the name of my marae, which is like a, uh, it, my home complex, so to, so to speak. Um, and it's just a real pleasure to be invited on. So, uh, yeah, me here to Kia Okoto. So I'm not sure where to go from there, but... <laughs> well, Tip, you and I have travelled quite a few roads up and down yeah, yeah. Aotearoa, and it's been a lot of time talking about motivational interviewing and working within... Māori Titikanga, and some years have passed now, right? I mean, quite a few years have passed now. Mm -hmm. I know you've been involved in a lot of projects, and I know you've worked a lot with Papa Māori organizations within the country. And so in terms of this hero's journey you've been on with motivational interviews, as you're coming back full circle, what have you learned about MI and working and working from, uh, you know, uh, uh, at least from Māori world for you and working alongside Māori and, and you know, you just what got cool. you interested yeah. in motivational interviewing in the first place? <laughs> well, I'll start with that. Terry Moyers came and did a workshop on the value card sort and the uh, importance and confidence rules and I was just sold really. That was in 2002. And then I had the pleasure of meeting you, bud, and um, and then stepping into that um, journey of becoming a trainer of trainers, and 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 I've you know, I want to make it to you particularly, Joel, because you introduced me to my family. It's a very international family that has so much generosity uh, that exists within us, and that's always really struck me. Is um, we give away more than we get. 
and may that long may that continue may long may that continue um so in new zealand i suppose by culturalism uh or, or maori live in a uh, sort of a colonized society so use of maori practices and uh, healing practices and then use of western practices can be a really uh, delicate dance um I asked this co-mata, sort of an elder, what he thought. He knew nothing about Emoi, but he was uh, he was uh, uh, very steeped in the knowledge of things Māori. And I asked him how he saw motivational interviewing uh, and how he saw healing practices Māori. And his answer was, uh, well, tikanga, which is sort of uh, practices Māori, uh, has its own whakapapa, which means genealogy. Uh, and has its own mana, which sort of means influence. I'm sure motivational interviewing has its own genealogy, has its own influence. Just allow each to sit in their own influence without trying to impose one on the other or Māoriify one or Pākehify the other, as we would say. Um, and that gave me a really deep understanding that um, they could exist alongside each other and have a relationship that didn't have to be about imposition of one or the other or trying to fit one inside the other. And so um, I guess for Māori, we have a process of engagement um, called the pōwhiri, and it's, a, it's our way of changing states from unknown to known, unsafe to safe, from the darkness to the light. And so when I looked against, you know, looked at our poor fitting process and looked at the processes of MI, MI fitted so well within I could do my my our indigenous process of engagement and then hold a conversation for change. But what was really important was that uh, people would experience the beauty of this process of engagement that we have as Māori. And so um, I guess over the years, having worked with both uh, Māori and Western is here in, in Aotearoa in New Zealand, um, that for me, I every time I have a session, I start with a whakatau or, or a, a pōwhiri. Um, to which involves sort of uh, an acknowledgement of the unseen celestial realms, uh, an acknowledgement of the unique shape and person you are and the influence that you have in the world, and then an acknowledgement of where you come from. And that process of creating a container of safety is a wonderful thing for as a as a wonderful experience and a, and a really safe container then to have a conversation for change um for mi so um i guess over the years i've been able to incorporate our traditional uh you know using for example uh asking permission um i've been able to incorporate pudako which is our narratives of origin our stories and our yeah 
in, in a healing way by saying, having somebody talk to me and they're sort of enlightening me about their dilemma. And I might ask permission, hey, I've got a pudako that I'd like to share with you that might relate to your, your dilemma. Would you be okay if I shared this pudako? And so I can incorporate our indigenous narratives in a way that they get the opportunity then to unpack that and to find their change talk through the use of some strategic questioning. Um, and and have a conversation for change. And I guess in, in New Zealand, the I don't know what change talk looks like in the Māori language, but most New Zealanders, most people in New Zealand, well, they all speak, most Māoris too all speak English. So the conversation is in English. So that's also a uniting force, is that I'm not having to translate. It's um, sitting within the English language. And that does help hugely. Um, I would be really... I guess one thing that might be interesting for me to look at and has crossed my mind is what would change talk look like uh, in the Māori language? Um, and so that's, yeah, that's a conversation. Yeah. And, and in regards to, uh, in, in regards to the pōwhiri and, and, and bringing, you know, two people that don't know each other together mm. and having that conversation of who are you and where are you from and, who are your people? Where, where do you think, in terms of engagement, right, particularly engagement, where do you think the, the, the empathy sits within that? Expressing, where do you think expression, the, the expression of it. I'm, I'm not quite sure I understand the question, but... Well, one of the things, let me go back. Maybe I should have framed up this question a little bit differently. One of the things I remember... Steve talking about a few years ago at a conference down in Melbourne was rapid engagement of motivational interviews. Oh, yep, yep. Right. And my thinking about that was, well, it's rapid empathic engagement is mm -hmm. what makes, it's empathy that makes the engagement rapid. You know, so that's mm -hmm. when he was doing his 2080 rule and, and you know, and working with, and working with your, probably you even do this with your Pakia clients, but with Māori clients, you do the you do the pofuri, the fuck mm -hmm. and you want to get to know. Mm -hmm. And I'm just kind of wondering. I guess I'm just wondering out loud, and it might not even fly. Where, what would be the Māori construct for empathy? How's that? Let's go from there. How would you How would you describe that from a from from a Māori perspective? <clears throat> I think that's where I liked much of Pat's corridor was that um, mm. I didn't have to create uh, constructs in Māori that would represent MI. So um, I could allow each just to sit in their own influence. And if there was anything, I'm, I'm sort of locating motivational interviewing in that conversation for change within the process of engagement for Māori within our porphyry process. So the conversation or MI doesn't change at all, um, but I'm locating it within uh, an engagement process that is really holistic. And, mm -hmm. and with the view of time, we call it mātiwā, and the right time and the time that it takes. So um, 
which is a bit like, you know, if you behave like you've got 15 minutes, it might take all day. If you behave like you've got all day, it might take 15 minutes. So you locate yourself in the knowledge of the, the kaupapa, the, the importance and gravity of that conversation is given the time to uh, allow the time to just unfold, of which some of that is me introducing myself and where I'm from, just as I have. And normally I would have done a karakia and, and sort of uh, acknowledged the unseen celestial realms. Um, and I would have acknowledged the uh, sky father and the earth mother. I would have acknowledged my those that have passed, those ancestors of mine that have passed. I'd have acknowledged that person and where they come from um, and their sub-tribe and their iwi and maybe their waka, their canoe, their ancestral canoe. So I would have had a process where I could let that person know, you're seen, I see where you're from. And mm. that process of connection then creates the container for me to have that conversation of EMI without, uh, yeah, without and keeping the integrity of the model of EMI also intact. That makes sense. So I'm not trying to translate one over. Yeah, yeah. yeah, no, I mean, yeah, that makes that makes great sense, Tip. I mean, it's almost like you know, empathy is a Western construct. I mean, the word is, mm. right? It, it, but the, I think the experience is universal. Yeah. But you don't need maybe within Maori, you don't even need a word for it because it just exists. Mm. Mm. Yep. And, and I think that's a I think it's a like Tip, I think it's a great place for us to begin the conversation. Yeah, come on. Yeah, and and then we'll come back and we'll we'll jump oh. right in. So, so uh, so we, if you think about the four processes, we spent most of the time. Most of you, what you shared about was engagement. That's right? a, so it's, it's, I'm not trying to guide the conversation yeah. along the four processes, <laughs> but but it would make sense. It'd be culturally congruent in general with what we're talking about, mm -hmm. you and I. Well, I suppose the okay. use of Pudako, the use of the narratives of origin creates a platform for that conversation too, creates a focus uh, that's a narrative of change that people can locate their change experience in or there and and relate that. And if you're Māori, that just speaks to you. I can't explain what that is, but it just makes yeah. sense. Yeah, and absolutely. so that's a use of that also, sort of bringing in uh, our narratives of origin, but doing things like asking permission to tell that. So there's always that sense of, um, I want to emphasise a person's autonomy in there, or in Māori we call it tino rangatiratanga, there's sort of sense of agency in the world. So those elements of EMI are also part of that, which might not necessarily be part of tikanga, of things Māori, but as a lovely way that EMI has that introduces my culture into that space of what EMI is too. I just want to make you back to you about the work that you've done and what you've taught me. And it's it's oh, greatly good. appreciated. So the, the student has become the teacher <laughs> and as the way it should be. Um, I wanna I wanna I wanna um kind of stick with what Steve's request, which was for the uh for Shamia and Fergus to hang on as long as possible to give him the opportunity to get engaged with you guys. So Elizabeth, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring you into the conversation. And if you'd like to introduce yourself and where you're from and the kind of work you do, and you've been around the MI world for a long time, and what you're, what's happened down, what you see and what you guys have done in Brazil. You're muted. 
Reflect Lord. This is Zoom world. We're all used to that. I'm Elizabeth. I'm a clinical psychologist. And I've been trained by uh, Steve and Bill in 1998. I'm an old person here, I told you. And I was trained in New Mexico many, many years ago, and it changed my life. I used it to work uh, since then with chemical dependence and uh, psychiatric diseases as very severe, like um, people that try to kill themselves or uh, people that, that are with bipolar disorder or in a psychosis state. Um, and it changed my life because it was like a gateway uh, for my guilty. A gateway for my guilty for not treating what seems to be the more severe uh, diagnostic. Like an example, tell me if I'm not clear because of the language, please. Um, I use it to receive a patient or trained someone to receive a patient that was an alcoholic. And this person started drinking early in the morning at 8 a.m. And they use it to come and say, I came here to stop smoking. And I understand that people die from smoking uh, much more than with alcoholism. But we know that the, 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 the change of behavior of someone that starts drinking at eight o'clock, uh, it's terrible, can make many injuries and, and car accidents. And I learned how to stop myself trying to force someone to do different and say, mm -hmm. okay, I will start with you trying to, to help you in the smoking cessation. The point is, I knew how to do it, but I didn't allow myself because my intuition used it to kind of backing vo voice saying, go first where he wants to be. But my guilty of doing the wrong thing with that patient that needs to stop drinking, it was terrible. So uh, train people and use motivational interviewing change my way of being too, mm. because I had to think about respect more the liberty and the other's choice. Because I, I believe on that, that if you do motivational interview, you have to change yourself too. And I think Steve asked us to, to talk about things that helped. Oh, sorry, but first I'd like to, to, to talk about uh, what Brazilian people, what I think Brazilian people 
is so attracted by motivational interviewing. That was the first question. Okay. And Brazilians are Latin Americans. I don't know if you know lots of people, Latin people, and we talk like that, we hug, we kiss, we express ourselves with uh, some intense of being. And if you compare to CBT approaches, where you have a previous agenda and you do homework and it, this rigid format, it used to, to separate the professional from the client in a natural way. And sometimes Brazilians feel that it's too cold. Lots of times I have Brazilians that go to United States or even England and say, I need to do therapy with you because here everybody's too cold. And I say, well, you don't, you don't know people from motivational interviewing because I think that we are different than the others. But usually, if you go to CBT approaches, you, you get a distance. So I think I was wondering why and how. And my point of view is, is, is that we are just a little bit, as Latin America's, more hot, not in the sense of sex. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You have some term in English that it's hot sex, but I'm not talking about that. We are more well, are warm. It's not hot. We are more yes. warm. So the connection that motivational interview establish with the client makes more, I think it's more important for Latin America than the, than the others. So Elizabeth, when you when you're talking about the connection that you make, and, and I think I have a pretty good sense of what you mean by hot. It's just a, just an energy that's there. Mm -hmm. that, 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 the the that clear just, express of affection. Yes, it's just, it radiates. Mm -hmm. um, so when you talk about connection, what, what are you talking about? That, that type of connection and how does MI fit with the way that Latino Americans um, connect. What, what do you think it is about that? Allowing choices, not yeah. having the, the, the professional choice, the respectful, the, the acceptation of the full person uh, with their doubts, because so that acceptance. In, yes, we, in the past we didn't allow people to have doubts. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 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 So there's, there's, so, there's something about it, the interaction being more familiar. Yes. It's a to, kind of in, intimacy. Yeah. That happens. I think that th this is the word. It's a intimacy in in the good meaning of this. Uh, uh, intimacy and close, the warm, the kindness. 
And I would link that back to what Tiffany was saying about the pothery and the coming together. And have, having been in these experiences, it's a very intimate experience, mm-hmm. uh, particularly if there's a hongi that happens. And, if you know, if, if you're going to touch heads and touch nose and share a breath together, you know, mm-hmm. with somebody you may not know that well or at all. Um, mm-hmm. But it's a very, but there's something about that intimacy. I think that's a beautiful word, Elizabeth, about that, because it is a very intimate experience that we have with the people that we get the opportunity to work with. Mm-hmm. Yes. And there's yes. something about MI that can hold that intimacy. Uh-huh. Okay. Is there something? And, and, I think- and it might have to do with sort of the, the spirit, as you were saying. Yes, yes. Yes, it, it, it seems uh, to have something with the spirit. And about the approach, uh, I, I thought about two, two strategies that I have in the Stephen, I think it's one of the first books, Health Behavior oh, Change. I that book, yeah. Yes, Health Behavior Change 1999. It's a yeah. it's a copy. It's a legal copy because in 1999 we didn't have Amazon to bring books to Brazil. So yeah. I knew about the book and I, I got the, the copy. And yeah. in this book, that it, it helped me a lot. Uh, that there are two strategies that helped me a lot. One of them is the strategy for multiple behaviors and single behaviors. Do you remember that? Yeah. This chapter. And when someone come to you and, and have many, many things to change, how to choose one to start and not wanting to solve all the problems with the client participation. The, the, so they, they, they describe a lot in this chapter, in this book, how, how to choose the most important thing to, to begin. And for me, in my, my clinic practice, today it, it makes a great difference because people that come to an inpatient clinic that's where I'm a di- director, uh, when they come, they, they think they are coming only because of the symptom. Oh, I had a, 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 I tried to kill myself. Oh, I came here to treat this. And our target is to propose something like, let's rethink life. Because someone that tried to kill themselves, someone that tried to himself, sorry, uh, they are not eating very well, they are not exercising very well, they are not having social support very well. So we we try to, to put on the table other things to rethink. Yeah. That are very, very necessary for the a good result. So we use multiple behaviors and single behaviors and also exchange information. I, in this book, 
they they propose uh, not to talk, uh, give information, but exchange information. And this turned my head too, because it it brought a sense of mutual constructing. If you are exchanging information with that, I I don't know if you use this strategy, but I, I believe you do. And that is, we have to elicit from the patient, provide for the patient and elicit through the patient. So these this two main ways of approaching that includes multiple behavior and single and exchange information, of course, with the reflections, amplified, mm. simple, double, uh, this three, I think it's the most important in my practice to go ahead. Can I, I have a question about that. And I, and I, and I think, I think, you know, I think those three strategies are all about leveling, working with people in collaboration and partnership, mm -hmm. honoring autonomy, mm -hmm. um, really listening to what people have to say yeah, um, and interacting with them in a way in which you're bringing, you're moving towards them and not telling them what to do because you're trying to understand. Mm -hmm. So when, when you train motivational interviewing and you practice motivational interviewing in Portuguese and are there modifications or different ways that you have to offer reflections or ask questions or, or things that you do different linguistically than it's written in English? No. And okay. I, I found, I, I found funny when you talked about, we think that it's a Western approach because for me, it's completely close to Brazilian approach. Okay, good. Perhaps you become more Latin people after MI. You know? Perhaps so. Perhaps <laughs> so. Between between MI and moving to New Zealand, maybe it's it's maybe I'm not as Western as I thought I was. Um, I hope not. Um, okay. So so basically the translation is very straightforward. Yes, yes. When you're training people in motivational interviews. Yes, I don't have problems with that. It's okay. very similar. The empathic word is the same. We call empatia in Brazil. Yeah. Compassion is compaixão. It's, yeah. it's very it's similar. Okay. Okay. Cool. So, look, hey, Ange, let's, let's, Steve said he should be here in about five minutes. Um, so let's kind of look at the chat and see where we're at. And are there any questions or comments that we could that we can move into? I'm just trying to save you two for Steve because that's what he wanted. So, um, he's delighted that y'all are here. And um, you know, I was interested in, um, in some of the passing chat when Tiffany was talking. They someone said this is very similar to to some working with some people in Africa as well too. So mm -hmm. some of these things are. Kind of universal in some ways. Mm -hmm. Really interesting to me. Um, so there was lots of chats and nods from the panel and what you were saying there, Elizabeth. So a lot of agreement. 
Um, Matt, Matt's hog, um, Hogmart, our friend Matt, said, we're all smiling with recognition now, Elizabeth. When you talk about how practitioners of, mot- of motivational interviewing are warmer and makes for better connection, I like it. it is, so it's, it's the Latin approach that we've adopted, I think, to make my work. <laughs> Elizabeth Carter. Elizabeth, you're so right. MI changes us as much as it sort supports people in the work with, sorry, in the people, sorry, supports people in the work to change. Mm-hmm. No, I, I definitely, Elizabeth, the way you introduced yourself with the guilt that you carried around, I, mm-hmm. got, I got introduced to motivational interviewing. And not only did I feel relieved, I felt guilty because the way I had interacted with people in the drug and alcohol world, treatment world, before being the sort of a confrontational, over the top. Before am know, I? How like many doubts? Yeah, but knowing that there was something not right about that, um, but not knowing what else to do, and mm-hmm. so I kind I kind of think I'm doing I'm I'm I'm, I'm all the MI training is a way of paying it back, <laughs> paying it forward. And, we and so we on. regret sometimes. Yes, yes, I I was definitely with you on that, and 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 I wonder as we keep the conversation going as as clinicians. You know, you know, and Tip mentioned that, you know, there's something about, you know, MI initially that intrigued him was um, the values card sword and the importance and confidence rulers. And then he dug a little deeper and saw, though, actually, this is a pretty deep well um, that really worked. Train overshot the station. (laughs) (laughs) Ha, bloody ha. So I don't know where that leaves us with Steve. He's sitting at a station and knowing Steve, he's pretty frustrated. Um, and he'll join us when he can. So I'm just going to keep the conversation going. Um, this is uh, the fun thing about this webinar. We, we, we don't pretend to be something we're not, for sure. Um, so, hey, um, Shamil, how about I bring you into the conversation, just in, in respect to time? And, again, we, we carry the conversation past the time. No problem. So why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us where you're from and the kind of work you do and whatever you want to share about motivational interviewing and how you use it and how it fits with the world that you exist in. Okay, so I'm Shaima Ali and I'm really um, honored to be here tonight. It's almost 9 p.m. in Cape Town, South Africa. I am based at the University of Cape Town and I work alongside Fergus, who will come on shortly as well. I am a training and curriculum coordinator for the South Africa ITTC and I work on a postgrad diploma in addictions care. I do some lecturing there and I also train motivational interviewing. So my work experience with MI is using it in clinical work, but mostly in training healthcare workers across our country. And I must admit that feeling of guilt that Elizabeth spoke about, I also had it when I worked with clients. I'm like, oh my gosh, I did that. What was I thinking? But thinking about this and reflecting back, in South Africa, in my experience, our healthcare system is so overburdened. And this stems from the past traumas of apartheid and that all that's carrying through to where we are today. 
And so in our healthcare system, we just want to fix our clients. We don't have a lot of time with our clients. In, in the rehab facilities, you maybe have three weeks or 21 days on average. And so when I first got introduced to Emma, I was like, how do I stay with this person, but I only have this limited amount of time with them? And so we push, we push our clients to stop using, to not relapse, and it just doesn't work. <laughs> and so when I came into MI and trained or got trained in MI and used the different approaches, I saw the changes within my clients. So I could see that in, on a clinical level. But I just want to flip this onto training healthcare workers. And I must say, when I train for two days, day one is a lot of resistance. And it stems back to my, my own experiences as well. We healthcare workers are telling us, listen, yeah, I cannot stay with where my client is at. These people need to get done, get onto their treatment and move on. And that was their mindset. They just wanted to be the expert. Clients need to do as they are trained and need to follow the programs, whether this is substance use or any um, health con conditions, HIV is highly, highly prevalent in South Africa. So we have one of the largest amounts of people with HIV. So treatment for HIV is quite rigid. And so they want to get people on medication and healthy. And so day one of my trainings are always very, very difficult because the comeback is I don't have time. I have a 50 people on the bench waiting to see me. I have 15 minutes per client. Where am I going to fit empathy, compassion, staying with where my clients at and treat them all at the same time? And next first day, we roll with it and we go with where they are at and we tell them that Emma is not actually rocket science. It's stuff that you're already doing. And by the end of day one, you can see the light bulbs going on for them. They're like, oh, okay, this is a person-centered approach. And you know what sticks out for them is the spirit of MI. And I think this links to our, South Africa is a rainbow nation. So we've got a range of different cultures, religions, 11 official languages. But wow. the spirit of MI somewhat resonates with everybody. It's that compassion, that collaboration. I mean, we've got the philosophy of, of Ubuntu, which is around humanity and community. And so when they have this shift in their mindset where they're not only the experts, but they can come alongside their clients, the spirit resonates with them because they can collaborate. They don't have to come down from expert to to patient or client they can work alongside alongside their clients and so that spirit crosses all the cultures the spirit of MI that way of engaging is the light bulb moment for them they don't have to scold their, their clients for not being adherent they don't have to scold their clients for relapsing they can try to understand and engage them using opening opening questions are a, a thing that is like, wow, why did I never ask open-ended questions before? It's always, why did you use? How much did you use? And why did you go to that party this weekend? 
instead of tell me a little bit about what happened this weekend. So when we give them these micro skills, which they had because they're all trained, they just never thought about it in an MI perspective. And so those kinds of things really stand out by the end of day one. Although the beginning of day one is quite resistant, they are not keen. And I even do, even Fergus will tell you, our postgrad students, they also like, this is not going to work. It mm. can never work. <laughs> and halfway through the training, the mind starts shifting. And they're like, oh, okay, I see. And I think, Fergus, you can talk about the responsibility um, of, uh, of being healthcare workers a little bit later. Um, and the self-care, when we start giving them the snippets of it's not your responsibility, yes, we come from trauma, we come from a very difficult, overburdened health system, but ultimately, you cannot fix this person. You can only guide them. And in South Africa, we like to say we're the guides on the side. <laughs> we, we're not going to force you. We're not going to push you. We're going to try and stick with where you are at. And so for me, the spirit um, and that engagement stands out in my trainings. By day two, they are sold. <laughs> they are sold on MI. They, they just want to know more. They want to hear more. They want to experience more of it. And they, they, they can then relate and see how this can be beneficial for themselves as healthcare workers who are burnt out, as well as avoiding those revolving door clients where trying the treatment as usual approach, being the expert, forcing an issue to a more collaborative approach and seeing that maybe that's, that can help. So that's, in a nutshell, my experience. Wow. Wow. And so part of that for y'all is just being patient during that first day, <laughs> just waiting for the, waiting for the shoe to drop. <laughs> And, and so, yes, exactly. And the challenge is that we work with professionals. We work with people across the country. And so it's not even that people are not educated. We work with psychiatrists, nurses, social workers. We work across different professions. But it's that needing to fix the person. Mm. And it comes from a good place. And I always say this. The wanting to help somebody comes from a good place, but that long-term motivation for change is not going to be sustainable if you're fixing the challenges or the issues for them. But working alongside them, making them part of their own journey, making part of their own recovery becomes vitally important, and they can see that by the end of day two. Yeah. Yeah, that's a huge shift for people to make in 24 hours. <laughs> it is. And Joel, I must say, something that Elizabeth also said, they actually feel guilty by the end of day one. They actually realize like, oh my gosh, I've been doing this, not incorrectly, but there are other ways to, to managing people's behavior change or their illnesses. And it doesn't have to be paternalistic. It doesn't have to be an expert um, patient relationship. It can be one where they can can work collaboratively. It does, but it, that just brings to to life the saying that if the only tool you have is a hammer, you treat everything like a nail. 
until you realize there's some other tools here, <laughs> you know? Yeah, so exactly. That, yeah. Fergus, what, how about you jumping in and, and, and you guys continue the conversation together with, with everybody? Yeah. Sure, I think I'll just introduce some reflections from, you know, from the trainings that we've given from and from some of the students over the years. I think, um, you know, two of the, the pointers that come up quite strongly um, from the students is that, you know, motivational interviewing and the process of being able to conduct motivational interviewing, and it allows you to show up to the to other people that you're training or to some of the, your, your patients and clients and really operationalize relational safety. So, you know, um, someone who's really battling with a chemical dependency um, who hasn't been able to trust someone in their life um, and has, um, you know, developed trust in a substance, for now and now for the first time they've been shown um, shown up and, and invited into a space where they can and are, are capable and allowed to feel safe. And I think uh, what's been communicated by the students is that safety comes from, you know, um, a clinician showing up in, on an equal footing and, and not necessarily and in, in a not knowing position. Um, so that's just the idea around that. And it would be, I mean, uh, I'd be interested to hear, you know, from the other clinicians, Tip and uh, Elizabeth, to see if that's same sort of, um, they've kind of been able to extract that same sort of idea from people that they've seen. I think another comment that, um, you know, Shahima and I have really um, seen a lot is that um, certainly the, the clinicians that we are we we train um, find a, a, a felt sense and almost a relief in the shift of responsibility that they get from not having to paternalistically um, solve and rectify the, the 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 person's difficulty with substance use. But they, they find some relief in being able to shift that in, in an empowering way to the people that they see and they treat. And, and that um, once that they are able to kind of lean into that felt sense and that, uh, that shift is a form of self-care that they see in their practice, particularly um, you know, in, in our I can I mean I can speak for our system particularly in our overburdened system, um, you know, the, these, these clinicians then are able to um, see that a lot of the agency it, it needs to come from um, clients and that's ultimately empowering, especially if they're equipped with resources within the community and, you know, say, say for example, some relapse prevention and CBT skills. Um, so those are definitely two um, you, you know, massive points that our, our students love, you, you know, love to kind of uh, reflect on with us. Um, I'm just having a look at some of the ideas that I was um, writing, uh, writing down as some of the other speakers. And then I'll, I'll just touch on, on another one that I've, I mean, definitely from my own perspective, and I can't speak um, you know, for everybody else. But I think that there is some sort of global language in, in a lot of the concepts that MI um, utilizes. So, so uh, the, the constructs, yes, and the, and the wording might come from, from Western language, 
But I definitely feel that there is a felt sense within a lot of those constructs that are universal. So, for example, in the South African context, there's there's a, a, the construct of Ubuntu and there's an idea that we are all community and we impact on one another. And motivational interviewing in some ways is a opera, operationalization of the, this idea. And so it's, I think in our context, that's why it's, it's, it is able to be taken on and motiva- motivational interviewing is, is um, quite easily taught is that it's, it's, it is something that can be embodied um, quite easily because these these ideas are, are universal and global. That's just an idea that I have. I mean, from my years of of, of training, I'm, I'd be interested to see uh, to hear some reflections on that as well. Um, so, so I think motivational interviewing is still in its infancy in in the, the, the South African setting and needs to be disseminated a lot further, but it's already uh, some of what we are seeing with our students is extreme, is, is promising. Um, so I'm excited to see what's to come. Yes. Yeah. If I can just add, sorry, Joel, I just remembered something. Um, we also trained quite a lot in a region called KwaZulu-Natal. So the language spoken there is Zulu. And often in the trainings in these rural areas when, so I only speak English and Afrikaans, but as I'm doing my training, I always have somebody who translates and they all agree on the concepts in the Zulu language. And I love that, wow. that they could translate from English to Zulu and all kind of agree on, on the concepts because as I said, it's universal. So I like the translatability of, of MI. And I've allowed um participants in trainings to do such little role plays in the in their language that they're comfortable with and then I'd have moderators who speak English and that language kind of go around and just check that that they are still sticking to the MI skills and and practices and usually they get it right yeah yeah no it is interesting when I've done I've done translated trainings into Burmese and to uh Mandarin before and um and the feedback is from the participants that gets translated is that there's some kind of what everybody's saying there's something about this that fits our culture and our language and and I think I think for a lot of people it is the the relational parts of motivational interviewing in terms of the spirit and the engagement and expressing of empathy. That there's something about, there's been some interesting chat, and I'm not real good at listening and chatting at the same time, but there's something about that translating somehow, because I think that's unique. I really like what you said, Ferg, it's a global language, you know, of, of, of basically people like to be listened to and they like to have someone give them their full attention. And to try to understand what they can't figure out for themselves, but not fix it. It's a balance, isn't it? It's a real balance. Yeah, I think I find if you strip away the the, the language and the words, it's an invitation uh, and inviting someone to sit in your presence and present themselves as, you know, who they are in the hopes of being able to find a way that they choose to move themselves forward. Um, and the, that that process is relational, and that's what I, I think the beautiful aspect of 
you know, of MI. A lot of the other modalities, you know, rely quite heavily on wording. I'm just thinking off the top of my head, like, you know, analysis where the technique is being able to translate, um, interpret, and that's, you know, wording heavy and the, the power dynamic bit uh, that lies in that interpretation. Motivational interviewing is is allowing yourself to come with difficulties and all, and 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 whether you have the language or not, present yourself and think with someone who is um, caring about how to move yourself forward. And ultimately, you you have the decision and are, are participants in that process. Mm. And that's what makes it quite universal and is. Um, and translatable to each and every setting because that's what we, we all want to, everybody wants to be seen and the difficulties that they, uh, you know, experience acknowledged. Um, yeah. 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 So quick Steve update. He's in a taxi going to a hotel. He hopes to join us, <laughs> you know, he's tracking him, putting our support his way. So, Ange, what are your thoughts about? I mean, we, this has been a pretty, a pretty robust conversation, and we could probably, if we were all sitting in a hotel lobby, we could talk for hours mm-hmm. on this. And I'm wondering how, what's the best use of the rest of our time. Um, Nava had an interesting comment. She said, "You know, when you're working in educational systems where the teachers have to be the experts." And it makes training motivational interviewing, teaching motivational interviewing really hard. You know, how do you kind of smooth that out a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so both the teachers feel like they're doing their job, but they can actually, because a big part of teaching and training MI is demonstrating it. Mm-hmm. In your interactions and Shamia, you 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 touched on that beautifully, which is you just sit back that first day and roll with it using your MI skills. So how do we kind of how do we sort of smooth those rough edges out around the people who are have identified MI as a skill and now they're tasked to train or teach it, mm-hmm. but they haven't necessarily maybe been through the training themselves and don't have a lot of experience practicing. Mm. You know, there may not be a, I mean, my solution would be what? Go to a training in MI. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I was just thinking about what Elizabeth also said about when you do, when you've been in an MI training and you start working and using MI, you change as a person. And mm. so, I mean, intrinsically, you've got these qualities, but just being in a training, it comes, it becomes more conscious where you're more compassionate, you're more empathetic. And even just in our working um, teams, just collaborating with people and engaging with them differently. So the same goes for our training. So Fergus and I started doing online trainings, which is another mind shift for us because having people in front of you is just more relational and it's, it's much easier to engage with. And then online, you've just got names or sometimes no names. And so we often have to rely on our MI skills and strategies. So putting out those open-ended questions and finding out from people. So using the illicit provider illicit. So you literally have to use your MI skills within teaching MI as well. So that has worked for me. It's actually 
um, using the MI and demonstrating it in the way that you engage with your colleagues as well as with the, the participants. Right. Well, that's a really good point, is that if you're on a faculty or you're in a clinic and you already have some MI proficiency, in other words, don't try to sell it to them, kind of let them experience it. So that's exactly. one strategy, Nava. <laughs> you know, be the change you want to see in your organization. And Elizabeth, I was I was just thinking about online training in in a in in Brazil where that intimacy and that that interpersonal connection, the touching and the hugging and the and the you know that uh, that intimacy. How how do you bridge that? Uh, when you're looking at a screen with 15, 20 people. You're, you're muted again. Don't worry, don't worry. Sorry, sorry. It's all right. Uh, in the first time of the pandemic time, it was very strange for all, all of us because we were forced to. After some time, I think we can manage and and try to bring this, this intimacy in, in the screen. You know, I had friends that used to say, oh, I, I didn't like, my therapist started uh, doing online sessions. And I say, why? Oh, because she stayed uh, without telling me anything. That, that neutral point of psychoanalysis. So if you don't interact in life, you cannot interact here. So I, I think we had, we were forced to learn how to do it. The pressure of life, the pressure of a war. Yeah, and, I think. And, and the adaptability of each other. Mm. Yeah, one, yeah I, I think so too. I think it's forced us all. And, 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 you know, in terms of utilizing motivational interviewing and training, and I've, I've done training recently in Singapore and the Philippines um, where I'm using technology to bridge cross-culture and all of that, is finding ways to get people involved, even if it's like, does anybody know how to do a poll? You know, get, getting people going in the conversation, connecting with people in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have a question, and I'd be really interested um, in what y'all think. So and it's about reflective listening, right? So reflective listening, is, as many people in the MI world know or that have been trained in MI, is a core skill in, in, utilize, in, in kind of doing motivational interviewing with people. And, you know, and particularly the more complex reflections and the better, the deeper and the more attuned the reflections are, the better. And so I was doing an introductory training with a group in Singapore. And um, no, it was, a, it was an advanced training that I do. Sorry about that. I did them back to back. And it was a small training of about 11 people. And so we created a nice intimate environment for people to share. <clears throat> and um, one of the physicians who had had some previous training face-to-face with me a few years ago, had some thoughts about reflective listening in Singaporean culture. 
he said, you know, he goes, I can't, obviously I can't speak for all Singaporeans, but in general, Singaporeans don't rely on inference in their interactions with people. So rarely will you get people kind of inferring what somebody may have said or maybe meaning behind that or things they may not have said yet because we tend to respond exactly with where people are at and the way we communicate. And so reflections are, in some ways, making an inference, right? Particularly if you're doing the continuing the paragraph, inferring to what the person, there he is, hey, brother, um, um, might have said. So we'll bring Steve on, and maybe we'll come back to this. You there, Steve? Hey, you're Joel Porter. There's two of me up there. You're muted. <laughs> Buongiorno. So, Steve, we're here. We've all been tracking your journey. We're glad you're here. Welcome. Um, we, we've had a lovely conversation up to this point, and um, I'm not going to try to summarize it, but if, if uh, you know, Tiffany, if you want to try to give a summary <laughs> of what the ground we've covered, you're muted, brother. Um, and... Um, that would, be, that would be good. I was going to ask you to do it anyway. <laughs> Just to break you back from the conversation. What, what I might not have been paying any attention whatsoever. But, uh, you know, what stood out to you so far? What, are you, what dots are you connecting within yourself about MI across cultures based on what we've talked about? Oh, um, I think uh, listening here, it's the, it's the use it's aspects of MI, like empathy, um, uh, some of the ways that we have that in the spirit of MI sort of reduced power differential, um, that honour another person's knowledge. I suppose I've got the sense, actually, it was there was a, uh, uh, someone put in the chat, I got a sense that we were explaining MI and how that worked. And towards the end here, we're now starting to move towards um, when, how, oh, I'm not sure if I'm explaining this very well. Um, when I've listened to, to people, it seems to be that we're talking about, uh, we're locating MI within the cultural framework of whatever culture it is and saying what works well with the MI and why that works well within the culture. And I think we're just sort of starting to move now towards how um, maybe um, like you're starting to look at what is it about a culture and the way they view the world and the way their language works that might create interesting dynamics for the use of MI. And that's really interesting. You know, it's like the question I had, what would MI look like? What would change talk look like in the Maori language? And it might look very similar. We might, we've got, certainly got language of desire, we've got language of ability, language of reason and need, and maybe it'll look just the same. But we also have things like proverbs, our whakatawaki, 
um, that process of engagement I mentioned and other aspects, particularly sort of the ESTA, and I know this is the same for, for Brazilian culture too, Elizabeth, it's the acknowledgement of the unseen. It's the acknowledgement of the spiritual realms. It's so fundamentally important for anything that I do. Um, and MI, for me, the spirit of MI and the, the way of being of MI uh, is uh, is a manifested extension of those unseen spiritual realms. So I, know that, I don't know if that even makes sense, but for me, they they meet very well. There's a partnership, sort of acceptance, compassion, and, and evocation uh, for me. Uh, sort of fit very well as ways of being. And, and I guess what I've learned for working for Western organisations and their Māori organisations was uh, most Western organisations work on the biopsychosocial approach whereas we have the te whare tapawha, the biopsychosocial spiritual, and the spiritual underpins everything. So when we're having conversations with people, we have a talk about modi ki te modi, the uniqueness of who I am and the, the, the life force of who I am is listening to the life force of who you are. So those pictures, those flashes that you get, those senses that you get. Maybe I've got an ancestor coming to visit that's having a, a that's giving me some information about this person. Like those sorts of things become really important in a language of change, and particularly in a Maori context where all of that needs to be included. And that's probably got nothing to do with the question that you asked. I, <laughs> I think I think that was great. I, I, mean, I was curious about you know what what sticks out to people. How about some other people? What are some of the things that you know you reflect back on the on the chat and on the conversation? Forget about don't forget about it. But this, where I was going, we'll just kind of bring Steve into the conversation. But I know they'd probably like to get a sense of what what, what kind of dots have been connected or what kind of connections have you made within yourself reflecting on this international conversation. It doesn't matter who, you can just jump right in. I didn't understand your question. Oh, when, thank you. When you think back on the conversation we've had for the past hour and 15 minutes, what are some of the th the things that really stand out to you about MI across cultures that you've heard from our colleagues in South Africa and Tiffany and a bit of myself and, and your own reflections? What are you, where are you seeing the, the connections? My, my reflection is we are the same. We didn't, we didn't choose MI because of nothing. I think we chose MI because all, we all have something in common that adapts, that adapts with some concepts and the basis about empathy and compassion and warm and care. I think we were all the same. 
And I, I started this session thinking, what do we have different? Oh, how Brazilians are different then. Yes, we have some culture difference, but we are the same. Mm, it's lovely. Shmir, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I agree with Elizabeth. I also see quite a lot of similarities. But I think what I'm realizing now is, as an MI trainer, is how much more empathetic I need to be with my, my participants that I'm training, as well as my clients. Um, and, and looking and listening to Tiffany, um, taking into consideration not just the biopsychosocial, but the spiritual as well. But it still won't change the way that I would engage them using my MI skills. I think that's what I'm picking up, is that it's still translatable across the different cultures. And I saw a question around religion um, somewhere in the chat, and, and I can see why there might be um, some barriers to using MI in that realm of, of using um, looking at the religious aspects. So, for example, I come from Islam, and... It's a very like you need to do things a certain way. And so you need to kind of treat the person also in that way. But even other religions or, or cultural or spiritual aspects in South Africa or in the context of South Africans is different layers. And I can see where there might be some barriers to using MI. But at the end of the day, that relational aspect, the engagement still stands out. It's still being collaborative, still asking somebody, what do they think? What do they feel? What do they think is best for them? And so moving from you need to do this versus let's hear from you. What do you think you're able to do within your community, within your religion, within your culture and getting that information? So it still boils down to being able to use the, the different um, MI skills and crossing those, um, those barriers. So I think that's my summary. That's lovely. That's lovely, Fergus, passing it all over to you. Uh, yeah, I think I, I just, uh, I'd like to echo, I think, what everybody said. We, we always have to, um, you know, be quite sensitive to the context um, that we, we work in and especially, you know, any difference um, because we don't want, it, you know, people that we're training or people that we, you know, treating to feel othered in, in any way. And I think MI, you know, it's, it's, MI allows for the, uh, localized knowledge and, and, and different, uh, you know, cultural ideology, ideologies. It, it gives, gives these ideologies a voice. Um, so we have to, you know, like we, I'm sure we all have been on the call, we, we have to re remain sensitive um, because in remaining sensitive, it allows and acknowledges the, the clients that we work work with, um, you know, to be who they are and and acknowledges their history and the, the, the struggles that they brought into the, the room or into the training. And, you know, once that is seen, it's a, we are able to move you know, move forward together and collaborate in a, in a partnership. Mm. So I think every, you know, what we've all said really rings true, you know, true in my experience and we have a lot in common. Mm. 
with the work that we do. Yeah. Yeah, MI almost has some built-in safeguards that helped us just respect individuality across a wide spectrum of humanity. Yeah. Um, hi, Ange. What are your thoughts, Ange? You've been sitting back diligently taking notes. I'm real curious about what's going on in your mind. She has the full summary. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm a student of MI, so I am a complete newbie to this. So I'm just fascinated. And what I take away is, is what Elizabeth said in the sense that we are the same. And, and the fact that MI appeals to us for a reason in that, you know, those common values, the way we connect with a, another person just on a human level, not necessarily on a, even on a, you know, on a treatment level, just on a human level, I think it resonates and though it's transferable across cultures and language, languages. So I'm finding it really inspiring. I really enjoyed hearing from you and how you apply it in your different settings. Mm. Steve, why don't you say hello? You're muted, my friend. Looking at a, a Q&A from Jennifer Wyatt. Yeah. Let's be frank, us, us psychologists got going here and got a little bit technical and full of jargon, okay? And Jennifer's wondering, okay, when you cross cultures, what about linguistic devices like using might instead of what will you do? Now, um, I feel a bit ashamed of the, the, the technical jargon. And I noticed that when I went out and worked with, Shahima and Fergus, I was very interested to see how you frame things mm. because presumably you've been doing a degree of translating. And I was fascinated when we ran a, a, a trainer's workshop quite recently in Cape Town, how you framed it as a guide on the side. Mm -hmm. Um, which has been ringing through my brain a lot. And I've been wondering, okay, if that's how you translate it, does that, does that, is it MI that actually happens if people absorb that idea about a guide on the side? And like, I, I like, I'm comfortable that that is probably what happens um, because there's a fundamental view that, you convey and that I think we all share, which is that people have within them resources and strengths and um, to address challenges that they're facing uh, with the help of a guide on the side. So that comforts me. And because I noticed that when, when I worked with you, you weren't presenting this, I think, useful, but not useful idea. You weren't just relying on the fact that MI is good for engagement. We know that, and everybody enjoys being listened to. <clears throat> but MI is more than that. And so, and I noticed in your comments uh, right now that, that everybody's kind of grasped that. 
it's not like you came out of this discussion saying, yeah, people like to be listened to and engaged with, and therefore MI crosses cultures. I don't get that impression. Um, so, yeah, I, I am, I'm feeling a lot more heartened than I was um, in recent months. Hmm. I think one of the things, Steve, that, that's kind of emerged for me is that, yes, MI is a lot more than that, but unless you can make a human connection or, as Elizabeth said, you know, be able to make an, an intimate connection or human connection with somebody, you may not ever get to the other, the, the other parts of MI. The, the first step is connecting with people, and most people seem to resonate to some very similar things about in beginning a conversation about maybe making a change in something. But then that that also the that spirit of MI, you know, flows through the entire conversation. It's not just something you do at the front end. And then you get into talking about change. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, and one of the things that I do, and particularly when I'm training in, a, in another country or with another group or even another organization that I don't work with, is, is say, you know, let's, let's learn motivational interviewing and then you interpret it into your world. So will, might, and, or but, if it makes a difference in your language, in your world, then it makes a difference. And I think sometimes people really want like a, a manual of what to say and what not to say. Um, and kind of wrestle a little bit with like, okay, now you know it, go take it and run with it. Yeah. So, so it's, I think what we've had, I'll, be, I'll pass it over to you just a second, Steve, to finish this off. I think what we've had is an intimate conversation. All right, go then. I see the finger. Something that struck me in recent years is the extent to which MI occurs naturally and is practiced naturally by, you know, this morning I had the privilege of speaking to uh, Ferguson Shahima will appreciate this, the coach who assisted Rassi Erasmus to let the South Africans win the Rugby World Cup, right? And I had the privilege of a, of a fantastic conversation with him. What he describes doing with these rugby players is MI. So there's a certain arrogance in these psychologists who construct this thing that's, you know, called, got all this jargon and stuff like that. And I think it calls for a lot of humility that, you know, this is a, a natural healing and helping process that... Um, is already widely used. Change talk happens naturally. Empathy yes. is something that people do. That's It's why we're human. And it's just the way we've sort of put it together to, and called it MI. Okay, we've wrapped it up in this way. But I think it, it, it probably crosses cultures because it happens naturally. Mm. That's, the, yeah. 
that really resonates to what Elizabeth said about, um, you know, how people connect. It's just a, an antipony, you know, it just, it just flows right into the normal, natural connection for a lot of people. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, look, folks, we are, we're at, you know, 7.31, my time in the morning. It's 31 past the hour. Officially, we're finished. If you got things you need to do, you're welcome to, to jump off. Um, we still have 72 people here. Um, typically, what we do is we just kind of open it up, um, and we keep the conversation going. If anybody from the audience or, or Steve or uh, Ange, if you spot somebody in the audience and they want to come up and join the conversation, they are more than welcome to. And we usually keep going for you know up to about 30 minutes if, if as long as the conversation is alive. And if it comes to a natural end, then we say farewell. So give me a second. Steve, if you want to talk to your colleagues from South Africa and keep talking with them, um, go ahead. I'm going to look at the, who we have left and see if, we can, see if anybody wants to join us. Okay, Shahima and Fergus, can I ask you, and I know also that Goodman Sabiko is here with us tonight, and it might be fun to bring him on because I've got a very specific question for you, okay? Which is that how well received is a reflection in different cultures and different languages? That's it's a very, specific, a very specific question, okay? Now, I know that in a language I share with Fergus and Afrikaans, it's probably okay. It's probably okay. But I wonder, I wonder, you know, Fergus and Shahima have been training people who are, whose first language is very different to English. Uh, and I'm wondering whether you've come across this problem. And if Goodman's on, on online, which I he think is, is um, bring him on. I know he won't mind. But can we hear Fergus and Shahima first? Sure, there you are. That's quite an interesting question, Steve. And um, you know, it's going to be nice to think of or take a few minutes to think about. Okay. Um, yeah, being being an English speaker and an Afrikaans speaker, I think when you you reflect back to someone, it's it's kind of seen as a sign of uh, being interested and in, in checking your understanding of um, of what they are saying. Um, we uh, something happened. Okay. Um, oh, Tiffany had to go. Yeah, yeah. I think what we, what we what I found in in the the training setting and uh, the the educational setting, um, th there hasn't been any um, you know, asking questions about uh, a reflection and any pushback. Um, so it would be interesting to you know hear from a. You know, someone who whose home culture is is the, is a Zulu perspective where we do a lot of the trainings. If that is, you know, if checking in what someone has to say, um, and and someone checking what what you are saying is is how they might experience that. Um, yeah, Steve. One of the things that I would say. Is Goodman around? If you can, if you found, he can't him. come on. He can't. Just no. to another device. Okay. Just kidding. 
So, Shahima, Steve, one of the things I was saying when you, when you came on, I was just chatting with, I was talking with somebody in Singapore, and he was saying that you know Singaporean culture within that they don't do a lot of inference in conversation, and that reflections seem like you're making an inference about somebody. And so it's not a typical, I wouldn't say normal, but not a typical way you'd have a you'd have in a conversation with people that they wouldn't certainly infer something that the person hasn't said. So that's one that's one thing about it. But they but they also said you can still work with it, you just need to do it in a culturally congruent way. There's Goodman. Goodman's on. Welcome, Goodman. Steve, only you can make me come out of I was literally lying in bed watching on my iPad, but here I am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did you catch the question, which I think um, Fergus put quite nicely, which is like, in your language, how, would, how did you put it, Fergus? How does, how does the... You've muted, Steve. How does the use of reflection pan out? Right. So it can be tricky, right? And I think this is why, you know, when we, it's the, the trick of translating the training to different languages, Shahima and I have been grappling with this for the past few years. So sometimes reflecting can come across as rude. Uh, or that you haven't valued what I've just expressed. So there has to be a degree of sensitivity and, and contextual uh, understanding to reflect in a way that's respectful. Um, and that reflection needs to be delivered with, with a measure of deference to say, I'm probably wrong, but what I'm hearing you say is this. And that that person then has the opportunity to, to feel validated by being given the opportunity to correct and adjust the understanding. And I think that's partly, Shahima can correct me, but for me, that's part of how you navigate that journey. But for example, for me, reflecting on something, Shahima, uh, from her cultural background as a, as a Muslim female in Cape Town, some of the concerns she voices may be foreign to me or maybe other to me. So I need to check my humility uh, and make sure that she has sufficient um, space and power given to her by me and by our interaction to correct me uh, and then to move forward in that way. Yeah, I'm just trying to think about this more broadly. Um, and actually, it can be trying to always give the person the space to correct you if you are, if your if your interaction is not um, in the most appropriate way. But then sometimes I feel like we can go down a rabbit hole trying to overthink it. And with MI, I think because it's conversational, and hopefully our clients would be quite comfortable in the conversation that they can be like, no, 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 that's not what I meant. Um, and then kind of try again. And even in English, we, we, we tell our, our people that we are training that sometimes the reflections might be off because you misunderstood what your client is saying. It's okay to take a step back and rewind 
and ask them to perhaps explain that again. So I guess, yeah, for me, the language part, I'm not so sure of how to navigate. Um, so I know, so I'm not good at Afrikaans, but I used to try to counsel in Afrikaans and I would tell the person up front, like, please correct me if I'm getting it <laughs> incorrect in what you're trying to say. And I think that's the part of humility and just being a human is to accept that we won't always get it right. And that's okay. Um, but yeah, I don't know if, Goodman, I'm not sure about the translating into Zulu. I did ex say earlier that often I had the group decide on what the most appropriate Zulu concepts or words are to describe some of the MI um, skills or strategies or how they do it. Not sure what your, your thoughts are on that. I think that's exactly it, isn't it, Shahima? Because in that moment, uh, you are transferring the power to them. And in some ways, you're actually modeling what must happen in the MI interaction. You're saying, I'm coming here with knowledge and with evidence, and I know what I'm trying to transfer to you. But why don't you help me understand what this means in your context? And a part of what uh, Steve and I have discussed and some of the other folks we've done some podcasts with is, in our context, we're also dealing with folks who historically don't have the power. They've never been given the power to be active role players in their own uh, wellness, in their own health seeking, in their own uh, accessing of resources. So now you're giving them power. So beyond even the translation, translating the relationship to something they can understand, how do I function as a Zulu woman who is the sixth wife, who has to ask the, the, the main wife for permission to say something to the husband, for example. How do I now have power to determine what my resources are? How do I have power now to tell you what I think you mean? So that's the complication, I think. Mm. Open to Fergus and Shahima correcting me. <laughs> I well, Goodman, you, you just took my head to another universe and just that that com that transaction that that you would have with a, a woman who's the sixth wife and 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 what that would take for for her perhaps to even get permission maybe to go see a psychologist and then right. to be sitting down and to do motivational interviewing because she's holding all these different relationships in her head That's right. about how she answers. That's right. So this is the other dynamic we speak about in our context. So I, I don't mind using myself as, as an example. I'm an MD, PhD. Um, and so I function as a head of division, as a director of ITTC. But internally, I'm still that not good enough Black South African. So when it comes to interactions where I'm meant to assert my power, I must grapple with where do I put that side of me that feels inferior in this position? How do I assert this role? So, but for me, I can intellectualize that because I've been cultured to do so. So many of these folks don't have the same resources to shift the focus of the interaction. So it's something that we need to think about. And I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that hopefully as we do some research and uncover these interactions, we can start looking at what does that 
role translation actually mean for the person um, who is sitting across from you? I think, Goodman, this takes me back to my initial thoughts where I said within our context, there's usually this expert-client relationship. And so our professional healthcare workers are taught to provide a service in a certain way. And the clients or the patients expect to receive that from a doctor. So if you go to a doctor, you expect them to just treat you, give you the medication and off you go. And so when we start training healthcare workers in MI and they start asking questions like, so what is it that you think you're able to do or achieve? Or what, um, what are your resources? It's a shift for the healthcare worker and for the client. And that it's that building of the self-efficacy as well for your client. But the role of the, the healthcare worker is vitally important then. Yeah. You are the expert, yes, in the content of treatment, but they're the experts of them, their lives. And here you're giving them an opportunity to take the role of an expert in their own lives. So it's, it, there's so many layers to this. As you were talking, I had the same reaction Joel had when I was talking, when you were talking about what their expectation, you know, a lot of people, when they go to the clinic, they expect an injection. So if I don't get an injection, that means I didn't see the doctor. So if they come to you for assistance and you don't tell them what to do, so certainly initially you risk giving them the impression that they actually haven't got the assistance they needed. So to make that shift, especially in, in an initial session obviously in follow-up sessions you can achieve more but in that initial session to create a value add in the short time you have is the challenge isn't it because this person came expecting that she was going to tell me stop drinking stop eating sugar stop doing this and do that but now she is asking me what do you think you need to do <laughs> like what are you talking about i came here for you to tell me so it's that it's that it's that cost it's that value proposition shift as well okay i'm gonna shut up now <laughs> I had a psychiatrist in Burma tell me, or Myanmar tell me, that when he goes to the northern mountain district, that the tribes up there think that he should look at the, he should be able to look at them and know what's wrong. And so he said, for me to ask my patient up there, what do you think? I'd lose total face. Elizabeth, let's bring you in the conversation. How does this dynamic play out in your work? I think you're muted again. About the reflections, it was the, the beginning of this discussion, yeah. isn't it? And, and, the, and the expert kind of dynamic, mm -hmm. the complexities that that can be when people come yes, to see I, you. As I told you before, I, I think the words, they are not so different than Portuguese from English. Yeah. When you say reflection, in, in Portuguese, it's refletir, it's the mirror. So I, I don't think it's hard to, to make this, this translation. And I think the point of the expert is, is essential. Let's see. I changed, as I told you, I, I changed a lot not being the expert, because I have uh, two places to be the expert. 
Because when I train people, when I treat people, it, when I guide my team, they often ask me what to do. All the team, oh, Elizabeth, what do you think about this patient? What do you think I have to do? And I have to elicit from them the answer. So I train motivational interviewing with my team, showing them how I use this for them know how to do it. So I think I, I can be the example or the mirror of them for mm -hmm. how to do it. And in this way, I, I, I make the choice of not being any expert. That it's what I think what we identify our, ourselves with motivational interviewing, it makes a great difference. Yeah. You know, you know, that's very, very heartening what you say about Portuguese and English. And it strikes me as quite challenging what Goodman and Shaima and Fergus have been saying about some cultures. Mm -hmm. And you know what just struck me listening to this discussion is um, it would be nice to gather, look, in English and apparently in Portuguese, there's a musicality to using reflections in these conversations. Can I just put it that way? That if you're just asking question after question after question, the music is, is a bit jarring. And so for us in a kind of Western English-speaking world, and it appears in Portugal as well, Portuguese language as well, there's a musicality to having more reflections and questions. Mm -hmm. we, can, we, can, we can write it down and show you and sing the song, okay? But isn't there, it's a bit of an arrogance in sort of then saying, okay, Fergus, right, make sure you get those guys in that foreign culture to kind of learn this music, right? And what I wonder is what would be really beautiful is if we could get some examples from these other cultures where reflection isn't used, but there's still a, there's a different music, but it's still MI. <laughs> that would be such a lovely conversation to listen to. I mean, when, when, um, Shima, when you were talking earlier about having your trainings translated into Zulu, and I was thinking about Tiffany, I was just had to imagine Tiffany having a conversation with some of these, with some of your Zulu colleagues where they could talk about, you know, language and, you know, find a common way to talk about that, you know, just wouldn't that be fantastic, Steve, to have people, to be a fly on the wall, just to listen to how people from different worlds from us talk about these. That'd be I don't know. It, it sounds like it's a different kind of music, maybe. Yeah. And, but the music won't be discordant, and you might still say, because you know that the culture, like like Goodman knows the culture and he knows the language, Goodman might still say, don't worry, this is MI, but the music's going to sound different because there's not a whole lot of reflections and uh, there's there's quite a lot of praise because praise in Zulu culture means something different to praise in, in our culture. There's a whole lot of things which we might not be expecting in our music. 
Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, there you go. I shouldn't really be taking part in this. I'm completely brain dead. Oh, no, no, you, no. You, you, of course. I cannot, it wouldn't be the same without you, Steve. <laughs> I'm completely shocked here. Uh, you know. well, I'm just surprised you made it. We were all tracking you by your messages. Oh, the train overshot. <laughs> so we're, you know, we're, we're amazed that we still have 42 folks with us, but it's coming up to eight o'clock. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to round off the conversation and just, you know, one is I want to, you know, Goodman, thanks for joining us at the tail end. It's greatly appreciated. I would love to be able to sit down and have a cup of coffee with you and, and, and talk through some things. Um, um, but anyway, but such is the world. Uh, Elizabeth, it's been delightful to meet you. We've probably crossed paths, but never said yes. hello. It's times. a long, long time. So maybe next time I get to see you in person somewhere. Yes, for sure. That'll be delightful. But thank you Fergus, for the invitation. I adore. Oh, I'm glad you glad you glad you responded in kind, Ferguson Chima. Thank you so much for coming on board. Um, Lot, lots of takeaways for me from this one um, in terms of how I think about motivational interviewing. And mm -hmm. Sometimes I think motivational interviewing is more of the way we think about working with people than what we actually do. And I don't even know if that makes sense, but it's given me a new way to think about change and interacting with people, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, which is to rely on the skills that I, we have as human beings. Anyway, but thank you all. I've, been, I've enjoyed this conversation immensely. Um, there's so many directions we could have gone, um, but, you know, I guess we had the conversation we were meant to have. So if anybody has any closing comments, please join in. Ange, Steve, anybody. It's been a real pleasure, a privilege and pleasure to learn from you and listen to you today. So... Thank you very much for um, giving your time so generously to join us. Thank you. All right, then. All right. Well, may Thank you all. Thank you. Bye-bye. And good may night. our paths meet again. I don't apologize for getting you out of bed, okay? <laughs> <laughs> good night. Goodbye, everyone. Bye-bye. Lots See of love. Hang out, hang out for a second. Steve and Ange, hang out for a second. Okay. All right, cool. Um, well, we got, I don't care if everybody else is here. Glad you made it, ma'am. It, it wasn't quite the same without you, without you here. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad you, uh, I'm glad you showed up. Yeah. Oh, you know, and. and yeah, Shahima and Fergus don't necessarily, I, I was comforted by the knowledge that they don't need me to for, facilitate their, you know, because they're so experienced. Yeah, they were lovely. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's just, you know, the three of us make the webinar, so it was good that you could join in. Yeah, I know. It was, I was seriously anxious on that train. Oh, Steve. Yeah. How did the train overshoot the station? Pardon? I didn't understand. <laughs> I didn't understand either. And there were these, there were these three Italian mamas in the corridor with me, and when we overshot, they went, bonkers at the oh, no. right so it was it was quite liberating actually because i also went bonkers but <laughs> we <all screamed. laughs> anyway i have no idea but it was the end of a long day you know i started in geneva you know yeah and now yeah, yeah. 
you know, now I'm somewhere like, yeah, in northern Italy. Wow. Yeah. But it's just hilarious. Is that a train over a child's station? And I was just thinking, only in Italy. <laughs> no, you did really well to be able to join at the end, Steve. Well done. Yeah, and it sounds yeah. like the webinar went, went really well, eh? Yeah, it felt good. Is I mean, you know, hindsight, you know, you think about all the directions we could have gone, but I, I think it went okay. It was a big topic to try to put into an hour and a half. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I'm still, my, my head's still reeling from what Goodman said about talking to the sixth wife. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's how different it is. Eh? Mm. I mean, that the complexity of that conversation, if you don't know that culture, yeah. you know, it's just not going to work. Yeah, that's right. Goodman's an, a, a wonderful asset to us. Eh? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So when are you home? Sorry? When are you home in Cardiff? <coughs> I should come go home on the week, by the weekend. Was, and I was hesitating about coming here, but actually having just walked in now, um, I, I'm just thinking, wow, maybe I shouldn't go home for a while. Oh, you know, you know the funny thing is that this is the hotel where we had one of the first mint tea and teas. The first mint. Oh wow! The wow. first mint tea and tea in Europe was in this hotel, and then, funnily enough, we then had a forum here about four years later. But guess what? Right, I said this to Stefan, my second oldest boy. I said, Tim, guess where I'm going? And I, I'm going to the hotel where you were conceived. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's right. Uh, yeah. Are you going to see Gina? Sorry? Are you going to see, uh, is it Gina you're going to see? Nina. No, Nina. no. Minty, Gina. Oh, sorry. Gina? Oh, Jim Paolo. Jim Paolo. Jim Paolo, yes. yes yeah. uh, Jim Paolo is coming here tomorrow. Great. Then I know what's going to happen. He's going to speak to the manager and say, we've been here twice before. Let us come a third time because it is a lovely spot. You know, it's right on the water here. Um, okay. Well, that sounds great. That's a so bit, you have a couple of days. You have a couple of days to recuperate. Yeah, I've got, I've got a few days. And I've had a lovely time in Geneva. Um, good. You know, good, really good. lovely time connecting with the other two and um, – yeah, I'm just going to enjoy the last of the summer because I know when I go back, it's it's going to be a different scene, you know. Yeah. Yeah, no, we're just coming into spring here and it's lovely. Mm -hmm. so good. Then it's not zero degrees every morning, so. Yeah, good, man. Good. Yeah. No, no, I'm going to plan on, once it warms up, getting out my hiking boots and my tent and heading up to the mountains. Oh, oh fantastic, man. And listen, um, did... Did any ideas come up? I suppose we'll work out what the next webinar is. So we've got it dated and we'll make a plan. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I didn't, I wasn't thinking about potential webinars, but I, I, nothing kind of jumped out about to me like where to go from here. Um, probably something maybe less focused on MI. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, my brain's resounding with a, with a conversation that went on for two hours this morning with two guys in Wellington who run the the coach education system for New Zealand rugby. Mm -hmm. um, did you did um? I spoke with somebody last week 
that wants wants to do some motivational interviewing. Did you point no, him in my direction? Yeah, it's, that's one of them, I'm sure. But they told me some incredible stories, those two guys. Um, but anyway, um, yeah. Yeah, I think I'm going to go up in December probably and spend some time with them. Um, there's stuff happening in my mind from that conversation, but it's not it's not clear enough yet. He told me an amazing story about Timothy Galway, the guy who invented the kind of inner, who wrote the inner game of tennis. Mm. So I'll shall I tell you briefly? He yeah. said he said he said this is um, Bruce Bruce Burke, I think his name is. He said he's a friend of Timothy Galway's, who is somebody that I really admire. Right? He wrote this incredible book called The Inner Game of Tennis. Yeah. It was the first, it was, he's the father of sports psychology, really. And he was standing next to a putting green, a golf putting green with Timothy Galway and one of his pupils. And he was chatting to Galway. And he said, he said to Galway, so how do you teach this, this golfer? There was a woman professional golfer practicing her putting. And Galway said, what do you mean? How do I teach her? And he says, look, okay, come here. So, they walk up to this woman professional golfer and Galway says to her, can I ask, you're struggling with your putting? And she says, yes, I'm having a real struggle with my putting. He says to her, what would your friend say is your most endearing quality? Right? And this golfer says, kindness. So Galway says to the golfer, use that with your putting. Wow. And in that moment, her putting just was transformed. In other words, she had this experience of wholeness mm -hmm. connected to her own good qualities. Okay. And it, it crossed my mind that that could be a completely different way of framing MI. Mm -hmm. Think about it. If you think about a conversation that has somebody, you see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, I'm just thinking about it. It's, 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 quite, it's quite nutty, I know, but, you know, um, anyway, there you go. I thought that was an amazing well, story. Um, well, I, I don't know if it's nutty. I think it's, I think it's kind of abstract thought and, and sort of like, particularly when you're working with people who are trying to learn motivational interviewing. And if you think about... When you think about somebody struggling with their putting, what are they doing? They're getting way up in their head, right? They're trying to, and they get frustrated. And then you think, well, think of kindness, and that kind of releases it all. Because you're angry with yourself, aren't you? You're, yeah. You're berating yourself in your mind. Yeah. And so when you're trying to learn a complicated skill and try, or trying to get better at it, mm. the, when it's not working out, then the more difficult it seems like it actually is. But if you're working with somebody, you say, what, what do you think is your, what, what was the phrase? Your greatest. What would other people describe as your greatest um, good point or asset, I think it was. Yeah, that's a good way to get it from the other people. Because then, you know, particularly for folks mm -hmm. who don't want to sound like they're up themselves. Well, yeah, well, if I were, I would probably say, you know, um, my greatest is, is, um, just acceptance of people, right? And, oh, you know, 
It's almost like a self-compassion thing, you know? Yeah. But I don't know that much about it. So that's a good idea. <coughs> anyway, listen, um, yeah. I, think, I think I better check in here. Okay. I thought you had a really big room, the mountain. mountain. You've been walking around. Like <laughs> no, I'm walking around in the um, anti, you know, the sort of fancy anti room, whatever it is downstairs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, man. Yeah, but I, right. I better go and check in and try and get something to eat. And right. Okay, well, why don't you do this while you're relaxing? Think of a topic for the next webinar. Yeah, I'll do that. I'll do that. Okay, well, come up with a good question for us. Yeah, I shall. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Bye. All right. Thanks so much. It was great to see you. See you soon. Take care, man. Thank Talk you. to you soon. Bye. Rebbe Poobah, a yee-haw bookum.